good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you are my name is mokanda maumbala i'm your host for today and tomorrow and the next day welcome to the scan podcast where we talk about all matters supply chain my guest today is a very interesting individual interesting because he left a very good job at the global fund and went back to liberia to join pharmaceutical systems africa psa in order to rebrand pharmacy I'm joined by Nan, the one and only Dr. Lloyd Matawe. Thank you so much for coming on board, Dr. Lloyd. So, Dr. Matawe, if you're looking back to your life, first of all, where does it all start? That is one. Two, did you always wanted to have the title doctor before your name? And these like three questions in one. But looking back, how has the journey been for you? If I had an opportunity and a chance to uh, do it all over again, I wouldn't do anything differently at, at all. Uh, it, is, it is a journey that started in the uh, dust, the dust fields of Africa, playing those balls, the footballs that we make with rags, and we put feathers inside and we kick them with everyone else. You know, and uh, everybody who has grown up in Africa would uh, know what I'm talking about. And then this journey, you know, when we were growing up, and again, things are, are different. When we were growing up, we were told it's all about education. It's about school. You, you don't go play football. Don't go run. You know, don't go do sports. You just go do your school. And we followed that religiously in the 80s, 90s. And ended up at the university, you know, I uh, was born in Zimbabwe and I'm still Zimbabwean, even though I've lived in 23 countries in Africa, doing supply chain and pharmacy and public health. So I did my first degree uh, in pharmacy at the University of Zimbabwe. And then I got a scholarship and moved to Scotland, where I did my master's uh, in clinical pharmacology and therapeutics. Where incidentally, I was actually developing vaccines, you know, in Aberdeen. And then I changed from therapeutics and clinical practice into public health and policy, where I did my PhD also at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland, uh, way back in, in 2000 and 2001. So that's the journey, you know, where it all started. Before, my thinking was always I want to teach in academics. I want to train other people to uh, be who they want to be. Uh, but it changed as I, ca I came into Nairobi for the first time in 1996 and then into Tanzania as a young student. And I said, look, uh, perhaps the direction should be public health focus rather than education focused. So that's my interface with public health. I'll stop here now for further <laughs> questions. <laughs> You've really been in it. You've really understood it because you have been to John Hopkins School of Public Health. Then right now you're the director at Pharmaceutical Systems Africa. What What is that disconnect that most people have? Let's say a layman like me when it comes to matters dealing with supply chain in public health. Really good question. Here is what you know: young people or those who want to follow a career in supply chain must realize education in a degree a bachelor's degree a master's it's only the foundation of where you can be everything else is your desire exposure and experience 
So as I said, giving myself as an example, all that I ever desired to was go into university and teach. And I had those opportunities. I started my academic career in the UK as a lecturer at the University of Aberdeen. I moved and, you know, who doesn't want, you know, to be comfortable? There was a very attractive package that came from the Middle East, from Kuwait. I was, you know, requested to go and start a new school of pharmacy together with other people. In Kuwait, we did. We started a new school of pharmacy in, in Kuwait. It exists now. Of course, the package was quite generous. And then, and then and after that, you know, I had an offer to move to the UK to join the University of Iowa as a lecturer in the School of Pharmacy as well. I did, but I didn't stay long because then an entity that was looking at supply chain availability of products in Tanzania and other countries came and said, look, do you have the desire to give back to Africa? Do you have the desire to work again in Africa? And, and I said yes. So I joined this organization called Management Sciences for Health, or MSH. They're best in Arlington, uh, Virginia, in the US. And I worked with them for a period of five years as a, a manager and a leader for their supply chain programs in Liberia, in Uganda, Tanzania, and you know, a little bit in Southern Sudan. And I was you know, best in, in Washington, DC. So to uh, summarize the question you're asking, it's really about desire and intent, not about the certificate that you hold. So you find a lot of people, those who come from engineering background, those who come from accounting background, and us from the medical fraternity, we all match together, you know, singing the song, the product must be available, and the product must be, you know, uh, affordable, and the product must be accessible, and that's your supply chain. You, your Twitter, your Twitter bio is very interesting. I, of course, when I was doing my research, and I saw it's very glaring. And you say access to life-saving medicine is a basic human right. How easy is it to get this right to to the to the humans, especially in Africa with the unique challenges that we are facing? We we have uh, people like-minded people uh, with me, like you know Pamela Steele. Uh, they are others like Pamela Linus uh, in uh, Nigeria. Uh, there are others, you know, who are working for different organizations like the Global Fund. People have realized that as long as the mandate is fully with governments to provide public health commodities, then access remains a dream. Governments do what they can do they can never supply 100% of healthcare service to our people. So it is the involvement of the private sector. And that's why I double in private sector as well, apart from being consultant in Zambia, I run a chain of pharmacies called you know, Five Star Pharmacies, where you know, our objective is not just the profits that come out of it, you know, it is you know, affordability and, and quality of those products you know, to the people in our countries. And, and, and Uganda, Africa is very similar. From Kenya to Malawi to Nigeria to Ghana, the challenges that we face are exactly and precisely the same. So we do need three things to have this right of access realized. Number one, private sector engagement, involvement. Two, 
local participation. You can never ask somebody to come from Australia, of the UK, to take care of our needs. I was born here. I know the needs of my mother and my grandmother. So my participation in this geography and environment is critical in making sure that my own grandmother has access to the products at an affordable you know, price. And then the final aspect is capacity. Capacity, are we able to do what we say and what we want to do? And capacity is not book education. Capacity is not seven degrees. Capacity is, are we trained in the right areas to do the right things? How many of us, people want to have degrees in medicine, degrees in engineering, nobody has ever said, look, I just want a mere diploma in business management. That's what most of us need. The people in Kibera, the people you know, in, 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 in Karaoke, in Tanzania, you know, the, the people in the red light district in, in Liberia, they just need abilities to manage the little business they have and in being able to run those business effectively, they have resources to buy their own anti-malarial products. They have the resources to buy their own Panadol. Rather than queue up at a crowded you know, a healthcare facility in, in Kisumu and, and, and wait for the government to hand them over to them. Uh, Dr. Lloyd, success, successful people have one thing in common, and I have interviewed, I think, five people right now, and all of them attributed their success to a large extent to mentors. Have you been mentored in your career life? And if so, how was that experience? And right now, are you mentoring anyone? I, I, have, I have mentored, you know, over 233 supply chain consultants in Africa. Annually before COVID came, we ran each year two programs. We call them training, but they're not uh, training, they are mentorship programs, where we're getting young people who want to do consultancy and management across Africa. And we did this because traditionally, we had consultants firm coming from the West with good you know, resources, a number to, to, but the consultants were not available at all. So uh, I became a household name in my ability to identify talent from as far as in Kenya. I have got people in, in, in senior management, about eight of them, I can count them, including some with MSH, and you know, some with JSI. In, in Nigeria, I trained and mentored over 74 persons who are consultants in their own in their own right, and that's mentorship. And I'm I'm glad you asked mentorship, because if it was training, I would begin to tell you that I've got 17 PhD students and I've got 33 masters. That's completely different to the question that you're asking. And in mentoring people, you also give them the opportunities. You don't bring them to a workshop where you're mentoring them and then they go away. You give them the opportunity to work and serve and learn from you. So I've, currently I run a program called Pharmaceutical Systems Africa and I have engaged 137 people as we talk across Africa working in different programs in different countries including Nigeria, Liberia, Zambia and, and Kenya. So that is mentorship. Mentorship is you know uh, giving but also taking. Also the question of being mentored 
there's another component to that, Mkanda. It's learning from even your subordinates. They bring a lot of experience, exposure, culture, and sitting on the table with them and listening is the absolute mentorship that a leader gets. Of course, there are senior people who have mentored me throughout, and, and one of these I would like to mention is a man called Keith Johnson. May his soul rest in peace. He's, he's late now. But he was this American working in Washington, D.C. for MSH. And his philosophy was, let's help Africa. Let's identify Africans who can help themselves. So the story of Keith is replicated everywhere. It's not Americans coming into Africa with, you know, such house and bottles of water. Is who in Africa can do this, you know, as well as Americans do it, and let's mentor them to do what we want for Africa. So Keith is one person that um, can happily uh, mention as one of the critical pieces to where I am today. Another, you know, mentionable name is a physician who was working at the World Bank. His name is uh, Dr. Uh, Soji Adei. I worked with him briefly at the Global Fund, and his mentality was always, the sky is the limit. Lloyd, if you want to jump, jump as high as you want. Nobody should restrict you from jumping. And finally, on the issue of mentorship and giving, I say to myself, look, if you look at the education, just pure formal education, in supply chain and pharmacy where I have the United States of America, is over 133 schools of pharmacy in the US. Greece, which has half the population of Kenya, has got 27 schools of pharmacy. Kenya, from my last count, had seven schools of pharmacy in Kenya. In Zambia, two schools of pharmacy, training pharmacies. So what I did was, look, what does it take from a private sector component to come in and participate. So I founded, became one of the founders of a new university in uh, Lusaka, Zambia, training doctors, pharmacists, and supply chain. And this is a university called Eden University. Of course, there are other people who had already impacted on the pro pro project. And right now we have over, you know, uh, 200 students that started last year on a pharmacy and supply chain problems. My take home from that is that find Africans, identify Africans who can help Africa by identifying Africans who can themselves help Africa. Truly mentorship is not only giving, but also not only taking, but also giving. Thank you so much for that. Absolutely. You have Absolutely. worked in Kuwait, you have mentioned you've worked in Iowa and 23 other African countries, but most of your work has been affiliated in one way or the other with international, maybe, programs or non-profits. I just wanted to ask, in your work, Dr. Lloyd, have you encountered any racial profiling of any type? So that question, that question is, is very, very interesting because I grew up in Rhodesia in South Africa. So race was uh, a reality when I was grow growing up. And then there was the civil war in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe. So Zimbabweans are very particular, and South Africans, about especially my generation, about the issue of race as we see it. 
I see race as, you know, uh, it's, it's evolving. If you look at the U.S. 100 years ago and you look at the U.S. now, you see a significant change in mentality and where things came from and where things are. What my advice to a lot of young Africans growing up is that race becomes an issue because we feel inferior ourselves as Africans rather than because somebody feels superior to us. You go into a university with the different races and you go in there and your mentality is I'm equal but I'm different. I'm different but equal. The other people begin to see you as such. But if you go in there with the mentality of I am here to serve, and this has been the song that Africans have been singing for a very long time. Anybody with a color which is lighter than mine, you know, will serve you. You know, whether it's on the dining table, you know, whether, you know, it, it, it is, you know, in the fields. You know, I'm the one who is supposed to go in there and harvest the product. While you sit, you know, in an office and receipt, you know, the sales. It has to change, we can't. We, and, and we can't ask people to change it for us. We ask ourselves to, you know, to get that change a reality. It starts when, when you want to open a business in Nairobi or in Harare or in Lusaka, you go there with a white person together, they'll jump the queue. Not because white people are registered in the companies. Because our mentality says they, are, they say that they are able and we're not able. So the short answer, the summary is race is a reality. Most of the injustices is about us Africans not being able to go in there and say we're different, but we're equal. We are not by any means inferior. So as black people, we have to go in there and take up spaces and take up those spaces confidently. Absolutely. That is what you're saying. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Matoe, in last, I think it was two weeks ago, the World Health Organization mentioned that Africa risks missing the globally set target for vaccine because we're supposed to have, globally, it's supposed to have vaccinated, I think, 10% of the vulnerable groups against COVID-19 by September. That is the target. Which measures should we put in place as a continent to ensure that we might not get to the target because we so many, there's so many issues, there's so many issues with vaccine in Chad, in Togo, but what can we do to ensure that people are getting vaccine, just getting the basic that is the vaccine? So, so it's a loaded question, a very good question. That question must go beyond vaccines. It must other epidemics will come and we'll see this continually again and again. Uh, fortunately, I am one of the consultants working for the African Union under the uh, Economic Commission for Africa, the UN, and to address exactly the question you're asking. How is it that we, you know, for once, we stop all these problems that bedevils Africa ahead of everybody else. One, it's exactly the same answer, it's localization. So we're talking now about can we produce and manufacture these vaccines locally? And manufacturing is not just at industry level, it's the capacity. How do we build capacity of Africans into research, into be on the same table and understanding the science that brings out, you know, these vaccines. Because, of course, let's be fair to the West. If they don't have enough, why should they give, you know, uh, what is scarce next door? Next door is, is secondary. What's primary is, is what's, what's within. So we saw, for example, 
the J&J, no policy is the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, they gave a company in, in South Africa, Aspen, you know, uh, ability and capacity to manufacture in South Africa. And they did. And the first batch shipped to Europe. And, and so, so, so what is that all about? How is that about Africa? So Africa has to begin to be on the table equally. Equally and with a voice. We have champions who have been advocating uh, for this, like Strive Masiwa, who has been advocating for equity of vaccines. But as long as our governments, as long as us as Africans are not putting the resources, equity is not about voice. It's not, it's not about campaigning, Mkanda. It's not about me making a noise. It's also about putting resources. Only five countries have put in money into the COVAX facility from Africa. The rest are waiting for handouts. They, they are coffers, it's donations, they're in church. They're waiting for people to come through and donate the resources. When should we begin to say enough of handouts? And we, we have resources in Africa. It's, it's, a, it's the mentality, it's management. And capacity, don't give it to the West. The West, they've spent a lot of money in building technical capacity in Africa. Let that investment in our capacity begin to speak. Let Africa stand, sits on the table and understand exactly the same nuances, whether it's science, whether it's management, or whether it's humanitarian. That is, that is very thoughtful of you to say that there's so much that has been put in Africa to build capacity to ensure that we have the resources. So I think it's now time for us to show that, you know what, now we can, we can just step up and do it. Thank you so much for that, Exomato. So I'd like to know, how do you unwind? I unwind by listening to music, but then I'd like to know if you unwind, what is that? who is that musician that does it for you when you're unwinding and just relaxing? I mainly, when I've got time to spend, I play it on the ten tennis court. I spend it on the tennis court. I go out and, and hit those balls and shout and scream. I'm a very good tennis player. Uh, so that's where I normally spend my free time. In, in terms of music, I love this uh, late Zimbabwean singer called Oliver Mtukudzi. He sings songs with such a meaning. And, and my daughter always say, Daddy, this, you know, is too deep. You know, I can't even understand even when I try to explain in English. So he's my favorite musician and he has remained so for such a long time. Yeah, I'm, I know Oliver Tukuzi and I think it's too deep. That, that song just, it does it. It does it for me. I think we were very lucky to have Miriam Makeba, Oliver Tukuzi because now that is the songs that we and I, 23 years later, can sing and it's a it's literally a unifying factor so it's glad i think i'm glad that you've mentioned a musician that i know because most of the time for mentioning musicians and i'm like um who is that but i'm glad that this one i know dr matawe last year covid brought the world to its knees and we had as a continent we were affected so much because most of our stuff is outsourced from our medicine to gloves to basics like contraception and if you look at pharmaceutical supply chain it really really went down because literally the plans were done and everything was down what do you think can be done to ensure that that never happens again 
Excellent question. Excellent question. And and yes, we were all on our knees. You know, from from you know uh, Ghana and Nigeria in the west to you know Senegal in the west, across you know uh, to Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya on on the east, and then you go all the way down to South Africa with its power and muscles. Everybody went down. Even ordinary paracetamol, you couldn't get paracetamol from India or from China. They wouldn't sell it to you because they were also in the same predicament. So the first thing that you know we were, we learned as Africans is at a very young age is if you are in trouble, look at who to blame. So we did. We looked at them and said, no, they are not giving us. You know, I was um, into supply, supply chain, medicine, Germans, they wouldn't supply. So what we didn't do was to look at ourselves and say, what didn't we do? Before you say, why are they doing that? What is it that Africa hasn't done? And, and to deviate slightly from this really, really important question, it's also the issue of health services. Nkanda would see replicated whole of Africa. Somebody in power, somebody in authority, falls sick, ill. They are flown to London. They are flown to Singapore. They are flown to Germany. You know, for health care, for services. Now, COVID-19 was an equalizer. Nobody could fly anywhere, get treatment, and unfortunately, God forbid, your last breath in your own country, in your home country. And then the people in power and authority realized what they hadn't done, not what somebody didn't do for them. It's exactly the same situation with supplies. A country like Kenya is one of the better ones, together with South Africa and Ghana and Nigeria to some extent, in that they have private sector suppliers and manufacturing capacity in Kenya. It has to be replicated. Kenya has to manufacture not for Kenya, for everybody, for the region. In terms of population, Africa is a population which is about the same as India and less than China. So why wouldn't we get manufacturing entities in Kenya, in Senegal, in South Africa, Nigeria, supplying our continent? And those steps have begun to happen. For example, the ministers, the presidents, signed the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement. That's a start. All these restrictions and barriers were necessary. In, in, in Malawi and Zambia and Zimbabwe, which together have the same population as Kenya. Why would you put restrictions in, in trading between your own people? And these were restrictions which were put on, on us in a hundred years ago. And to date they continue to exist. So remove, uh, move, uh, re removal of barriers is one of the strategies that's needed urgently. And the second you know, point which is underrated uh, Mkanda, it's access to finance. We see China, China, Chinese nationals everywhere in the world running businesses, whether it's from clothing, you know, to building, to construction. Where do they get the money? They've got money from their country. They've got access to cash. So why wouldn't I get the same access to my government in Nairobi if I want to be building bridges? Capacity I have, engineers, we have trained them at the University of Nairobi. Engineers are there. 
but they have zero capital. So why won't we train our people on how to manage businesses and give them access to money? So when it comes to handling another pandemic or another epidemic, we have, you're saying we need to do or focus on two things. One, remove the barriers that we have, we have been created for, but we have pretty much exacerbated, that is one. And the second thing is to ensure there's access to finance because yes, we have built capacity, but then we lack the resources to even just make the first step. That is very, very important. Dr. Mato, in my 23 years of living, I have come to acknowledge that there are mistakes that I made that have humbled me, but it's the same mistake that really teaches me a lot. In your years, you have a career spanning over 20 years. What is that mistake for you? One that humbled you, but at the same time taught you. <laughs> yes, so uh, we, we wouldn't call them mistakes. These are they're, they're learning pillars. Every mistake that you make is, uh, you know, an asset in, in, in your life. Uh, so what I would say I, I wouldn't do again, which is which what which is what you are calling a, a mistake. <laughs> what I wouldn't do again in, in in my life is to prioritize school, 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 and school ahead of everything. So in my first 30 years of life, all I was about was school. And of course I missed other things, you know, starting a family early. So my first degree, second degree, my PhD, fourth degree, all one after the other. And by the time you begin to realize there is a lot of extras in life, you are in your 30s. <laughs> So I'll still do I'll still do the courses I did. I'll take breaks in between, and and appreciate life and do other things in life that that's beyond just being um, with books and with academics. So you really spent a lot of time learning, and the lesson that you're learning right now is that there's life beyond learning, right? <laughs> that is yes. interesting. There's yes, absolutely. Absolutely, Mukanda. There is, there is, there is life beyond learning, life. a lot of it. Yes. So in Kenya, among the issues that we face in pharmaceutical is the fact that there is a lot of drug counterfeiting and there is also a lot of um, hiking in prices, aside from the taxes that we have to pay when it comes to drugs. Like, I know chemists in Nairobi whereby I can get paracetamol for 10 shillings and I also know chemists in Nairobi whereby I can get a tablet of paracetamol for 50 shillings. As a pharmaceutical expert, please help me understand what happens there and whom should we report to? So, so Kenya, interestingly, is one of the uh, better ones in, in Africa. They still, because of the borders, there are lots of borders with Kenya, so products will always come through the borders of a non-quality or of substandard quality. So uh, there, there are quite, quite a number uh, of uh, borders. So products do come through into Kenya. Uh, the Kenya uh, Medicines and Poisons Board is one of the uh, highly you know, qualified uh, entity in Africa in dealing with uh, counterfeit and substandard medication. So that's on the substandard medication. Uh, can this be uh, completely ironed out? Unfortunately, you can't. We can only reduce. Even in the U.S., you will still get billions of dollars in medicines that are substandard or of uh, a non-quality. Uh, 
Now you walk into a pharmacy, how do we know that this product is of, you can't, you cannot know. What we can do is try and regulate the suppliers and the testing, there's t regular testing you know, of products that come into, the, into countries. Unfortunately, once the product is already on the market, it becomes harder to distinguish between the fakes and those that are genuine. Uh, now, the issue of price. Price is a function of uh, market and competition. If, you know, I can make, you know, uh, two or three shillings more than you, uh, and I, I'm still able to sell, every business person will probably do that. You see, ethics is important, but very few people in business will prioritize the ethics. They will prioritize the profits. So how then do we address comprehensively your question? It's competition, allow competition. And Kenya is one of the better ones in Africa with so many pharmacies, quality chains, even chains, there are chain pharmacies in, in Kenya that have helped a lot to bring down prices. So the message to other African countries is to emulate the Kenyan model, which is a South African model. And to some extent, uh, there are some you know, notable chains in Nigeria and Ghana. So kill monopoly and allow for competition. That is what you're saying when it comes to dealing with drug counterfeiting and market price. Thank you Absolutely. so much for that, Dr. Matawe. Dr. Matawe, I would like to understand, how does a drug get to me? I know it is supply chain, but I don't understand. How does a drug get to me? Let's say it's from India. I know it's across the port. I, I reside in Mombasa, so I know the port is just down here. But what is that step like for it to get to me? But most importantly, what is that step like for it to get to someone in rural Kivu, you know, or someone in rural um, Nigeria? How does that work? Uh, I would break it into four steps, four very simple steps. So uh, it, is, it is exactly the same question you would ask about to tomatoes. How do they get on the dining table? So the first step in this process is uh, selection. You, you select the product. So the country or the consumers, what, what product do you need? If somebody has a sore throat, what do we normally use in Kenya? If somebody has got eye problems, what do we use? So there is selection of products a country needs. And that's both private and public. So then we have that list of products that a person who is in the village, you know, would need. Then after that is selection of the product. It's exactly the same as choosing where to buy your tomatoes, which tomatoes are tasty. You then move on to purchasing, which in uh, pharmaceutical terms is procurement, in supply chain is the procurement. In procurement, you know, whether you're a private player or you're the government, you're looking at the best prices. For those products we want, who has got the best prices, whether it's in India or China, and these prices in procurement includes the freight. You know, how you ship them, is it by air, if, and, or is it by, by, by sea? So that's the next stage from selecting them, we move on to procurement. And procurement includes the shipping down to the country level. Now, if this is bulk procurement of products that we use at country level, the third step is the storage. It's receive, store, and then distribute. So they come in uh, Kenya, they go to Kemsa, if it's public, 
if it's private players like Philips or the others, it goes direct to their warehouse who are wholesalers. So the next step after selecting procurement, we go down to storage, distribution, and, and receipt. You receive them, store in your warehouse, and distribute. And the fourth is, is your use. Now, once it's distributed, it's in a pharmacy or it's in a health facility. So it's dispensed to a user, to a customer, or they buy from a pharmacy. And that's the use process. So that closes the cycle. That, that is very informative. I, I think when you're privileged enough to have maybe health insurance, as I do, there's very little thought that goes into the process that drugs get to to an individual. You just assume, oh, you know what, I will go to the hospital and I'll able to get it. So it's very insightful and insightful to understand how the, the process that uh, gets, it's like farm to fork, but in this case, just getting the drugs uh, to the patients. Dr. Mato, we have so many accolades, uh, the, among them just being your title, doctor. But when I strip you all these accolades and your titles, what remains? You see, uh, what, 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 what remains is you see a village boy who enjoys uh, walking behind cows and, and goats. That's where I grew up, my, my background, my roots. I grew up in a small village in eastern Zimbabwe. It remains home. My mother is there and every three months I go in a village where I have no gadget, no phone, no TV. Nothing, I live there and take my bath in a garden. So you see me the way I grew up. Where we come from shapes what we ultimately become, regardless of how successful we become in life. So the me in you is an ultimate African with pride and, you know, absolutely confidence in who I was, who I am, and who I will become. That is, that is very good. The, the you that is stripped of Akalas is just an African boy from a small village in Zimbabwe. I think sometimes we forget power or we get successful and we forget where we come. So it's really very humbling when I get the response because I've gotten most of the response that I, because when I interview guys, that's the response I get for, for always go back home and as you've mentioned, it all starts at home. It literally all starts Thank at you, home. Thank you, You're right. Yes. Uh, so, Dr. Matoy, what has been your highlight in your professional life? What is that thing that happened in your life that did it for me? So, I'll point at three things. I'll point at three things and, and say, look, uh, this would never have been possible without possibly some, some high powers out there. Uh, the first one was my uh, move to Kuwait. When I moved to Kuwait as a young lecturer, uh, naive, knew very little about, about life. And in Kuwait, I get exposed to, the, to Islam and such, such a beautiful uh, religion, such a beautiful people. I didn't convert. But I was inspired by the message of equality in Islam. Everybody is absolutely the same and respect. So I, I was, so that's number one. I saw another perspective of 
social, you know, humanity. Sai, I was completely one-sided life. And, and so it changed me, changed how I looked at the world, how I saw myself and how I saw others. That's, that's number one. Number two, another highlight in my life when I said, look, uh, how is this even possible? Was, was when, you know, I said to myself, I don't know why, I said to myself, I was working for the Global Fund in Geneva, very good salary. We're doing a subsidy for uh, anti-malarials and, you know, working in Kenya and 10 other countries. And um, that's a dream job for anybody in public health and supply chain. And for some reason I said, but how much impact do I make by carrying $36 million and giving it to the government of Kenya? Anybody can carry that money. Why can't I be part of this story, which is the same as my, my as Pamela? Why can't I be in Africa and receiving just a proportion of this to change lives? So I left my job just like that. I left my job in 2011 with the Global Fund and founded Pharmaceutical Systems Africa. And then so the question, of course, in any change and transition, is where do you start? How do you make the transition? And I said, look, I would like to consider all the countries in Africa. And the country that I consider most challenged is probably where I'm going to end up. I ended up with my suitcase, staying in a small hotel room in Liberia. That's where I started. I lived in Liberia and started the company in Liberia and immediately got a grant to rebrand and rebuild the School of Pharmacy and the Supply Chain Fraternity in, in Liberia. So right now, the Deputy Minister of Health in Liberia, Mr. Tule, Vaife Tule, a wonderful man, I trained him. Supply, the Director of Supply Chain, Mr. Harris, I trained him. The Dean of the School of Pharmacy in Liberia, I sent him to the UK for his postgraduate studies. I trained 90% of key supply chain and pharmacy people in Liberia, either directly or indirectly through finding them, their resources. So that was telling for me of what we can do, but we never realized that we've got that ability to do that. And what makes you ultimately successful, it's respect and appreciation of other people. Whether, you know, the people we've worked with from Liberia to Zambia and Uganda, whether they are cleaners that are, you know, cleaning the floor, or whether they are colleagues who you went to school with, or whether it's uh, your boss, they matter the same. You know, when they call you, you know, your cleaner calls you, if you don't have time, call them back. They mean, it's, you see, sometimes our bosses are calling us, you run. No, 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 I have to take this. And then somebody else who is junior is calling, and you, uh, that does, it doesn't work like that. They all have a different meaning in our lives. And I learned that through the cycle, you know, of, of my work. So that was the second. Then, then the third one, the third one, was actually in Liberia as well. Ebola came. Ebola came when I was in Liberia. 
And together with the librarians and the minister, we said, what can we do? We mobilized resources. So the power of collaborations, power of collaborations I learned in Liberia. Often as Africans, we think you're more powerful if you beat the competition. But what competition? You work together, you become firmer, you become greater and more successful. Africans have be to begin to work closely together. Entities, different entities like myself in supply chain. We've got collaborations as my organization with 16 entities in the US and Europe and one in Africa. It has to change. It has to change. Uh, you know, one thing about the podcast is that we bring people who are very impactful to not only the supply chain practice but to Africa as well. And my audience, as you've heard, Dr. Matoe left his job and he was making millions to come and start his company in Liberia. You know, there are very many travel destinations in Africa, but Liberia is rarely on the map just because of the country that it is. So for someone to live a pompous life, to go to Liberia and to start creating a system, to start creating a, an environment that will allow not only Liberia, but also the continent as a whole to really prosper is something very commendable. Thank you so much. Uh, in closing, I would like to send you to a desert island. So I'd like to, I'll allow you to only carry two things. One is a book and one is a CD for music. So, and it will be there for let's say 30 days and you'll be in solitude. So which book will you carry? And if it's a, a CD player, aside from uh, Oliver Mutukuzi's songs, which other musician will you go with to the desert? I would, I would read it again and again, and I would recommend every person who is a reader to read Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, Uncle Tom's Cabin. Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> Dr. Mato, is that the child in you saying that? Because I have read Uncle Tom's Cabin. <laughs> really? Yes. You see, often, Mkanda, we, we are told stories, we watch movies, we can't learn anything better about the history of the black people than you do learn from that single book. So I would put it, you know, in my top three picks of what I would carry. And if I were not to carry an Oliver Mtukud's song with me to this famous uh, desert island, I would carry music from this it's gospel music from a South African group called IPCC. IPCC. That's uh, quite inspirational. Dr. Matoe, it is IPCC and Uncle Tom's cabin for you. Thank you so much, Dr. Matoe, for doing this. It's been a lovely afternoon. I have learned so much about you in such a short period of time. But most, I think my take home from this is that we need to be of quality. Let it, let it be by Africans, for Africans, and most importantly, let it be impactful. Thank you so much, Dr. Matai. Asante sana for coming on board. Thank you, Mkanda. Asante sana na wewe. You're absolutely amazing, you know, and, and yes, delightful to speak with. It's a pleasure to have spoken with you this afternoon. This has been a very nice episode, a very interesting episode for me, mainly because I have had the chance to talk to Dr. Matai, and all of you will, will listen when he says, when he gives his story, how he left very good job to come back to africa when he talks about how passionate he is to 
increased capacity in Africa for Africans to build Africa. Thank you so much, Dr. Matoy, for making time for this episode. I'm very honored to be in your presence, and I'm sure the audience will agree that this has been one of the best episodes so far. For you guys at home, keep it locked at SCAN, and do get the fuck